Then, in the distance, I heard the bulls. And I began running as fast as I could. Fortunately, I was wearing my Italian Capto Oxfords. <laughs> Sophisticated, yet different, without making a huge fuss about it. Rich, dark brown calfskin leather, matching linen vamp. Men's hole in half sizes, 7 through 13, price $135. <laughs> Hobo Radio, the official podcast of HoboTrashCan.com. You can share your thoughts on the show anytime by emailing Joel at Murphy's Law at HoboTrashCan.com. Hello, this is John O'Hurley, and you're listening to Hobo Radio, where anything is possible. And now, your host, miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I am Joel Murphy, and this is Hobo Radio, and I'm really excited about this one. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I am a huge Seinfeld fan. Uh, I, I'm the guy who sat there. I watched all the reruns. I, I got to the point I could identify an episode within the first few seconds you know, of watching it. I would know what all the plot lines were. I would know the exact episode. So I'm that guy. So obviously it was very exciting to get to speak to John O'Hurley, who played Peterman on Seinfeld. And uh, he he was a really uh, thoughtful, introspective guy to talk to. I thought we had a, a really good conversation about the sort of nature of acting and, and his life post-Seinfeld. And uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my interview with John O'Hurley. Hi, Joel. John O'Hurley calling. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Very well. Good. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, are you doing a bunch of these today? or? Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, well, I want to... To start, um, I just kind of like to ask people, um, if, if I were to go back and, and talk to people who knew you growing up, is there a story they would tell, like your parents or, or anybody that like, I knew John was going to be uh, a performer because, like, or, or do those stories exist? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, there was never any question. I was always, uh, at the age of three, I knew exactly what I was going to do. Uh, people would say what I want, what I want to be when I grow up, and with a sense of disgust that only a three-year-old can muster, I would point to the television in the corner of the room and say, "Well, I am an actor, so that's what I'm going to be." <laughs> and um, and it wasn't that I wanted to be an actor; it's that it's that I was an actor. So my entire life was directed in that in that area. I mean, I just knew I always did. I defined myself that way, so it was never a question of what I was going to do. And I always did plays in the basement for my parents and. Uh, you know, uh, and anything I did always had a performance attachment to it. The talent shows, uh, my musical instruments, 
and uh, everything had a, a sense of performance attached to it. And were you writing these plays, or you were just performing stuff that you knew? No, you just did. You know, when you're doing it for your parents, you just put skits together. And like, so this was you. So, so when I did Bonnie Python's Spamalot on stage, it was basically like doing a play in the basement for my parents. <laughs> Uh, so uh, when, when did you actually start, uh, performing for people outside of your parents? Like when did you actually start doing public performances? Uh, well, public performances, I was, uh, probably fresh, probably freshman year in high school. Okay. And... Um, it was the first time I was in, you know, the school play, but, uh, per, I mean, professionally, um, my degree was in acting and my minor was in opera out of college. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, but I got scared to death of the business of acting, so I took a five-year respite, and I went into advertising and public relations right out of college. And um, at that time, did you... I didn't, know, I didn't know how to make a living at it, frankly. And, um, and it took me uh, five years to realize that I was really going in the wrong direction. And uh, I resigned from my post in, at, uh, in public relations and uh, went to New York, and I got my first show 48 hours after I arrived, and I've never looked back. 1981. Oh, wow. That's so great. So it was just you you needed five years just to realize, like, this is not the right path. And then once you were... Well, it was, you know, I, I think it was... Um, I needed five years to grow up enough to say that um, making a living at it is my responsibility. It's not somebody else's job to provide me with uh, with my dream. And uh, so since that that first, uh, you know, job, like right out the gate, have you been pretty steady? Like you've been a, a working actor the entire time? or is I, it... have never, I have never. I've made my living as an actor every single day since 1981. I've never had to do anything else. That is amazing. Like, that's fantastic. The, yeah, that's so great to hear. Um, so no, it's, it's, I, I mean, I didn't go. I didn't go to New York to fail. <laughs> when I finally made my decision to go, I went with a direction and I went with a commitment and I was not going to, I was not, failure wasn't an option. And did, I mean, was everybody pretty supportive in your life? Like, did, was this understood? No. No, 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 no not supportive at all. I mean, they, they support me to the fact that they didn't kick me out of the house, but uh, no, I mean, to say support, no, I didn't get it because it was, you know, it was okay to do the plays in high school, but, you know, after that it was very... You know, now it's getting serious. You actually want to make a living. You, know, you actually want to try to do this, you know. And, uh, you know, it, no one had a frame of reference for it that was near me. I grew up in the suburbs of uh, Connecticut, so no one had a frame of reference for it. So it was, uh, you know, it was something you read on, you know, you read about actors on the in the Inquirer in the aisle at the uh, grocery store. <laughs> so when did it sink in for them? Like, was it just a gradual process or was there a moment where you got... I think the, I think the night that my parents dropped me off on 79th in Amsterdam at a single occupancy hotel, single room occupancy hotel, and it was filled with roaches. A quarter of the bed was missing as though someone had taken a bite out of it. And I think they realized at that point I was serious. Oh, wow. And that was just, that was your first place in, in New that York? That was my first place. Uh, and that same, that same room that I'm staying in right now is, uh, is now a million dollar condo. <laughs> well, it made it too. That's great. <laughs> the room also <laughs> succeeded. Uh, well, so, um, 
so then uh, was the goal to do New York theater? Like, were you focused on theater or was it always everything? I was really, in the beginning, I was focused on theater. Television um, was, you know, it was just a foreign, a foreign entity to me. I didn't know what it was. I mean, you know, um, it was all about theater. It was all about singing. It was all about Broadway. It was, uh, that's really all, you know, that was the focus in New York. And then there was this thing called daytime television, the soap operas. And that began to, uh, over a couple of years in New York, that began to, you know, attract me more and more and more. And um, it, it was finding me attractive and I was finding it attractive. And uh, we finally met in 1983 on the edge of night. And um, I started my daytime career there. And then I was doing daytime and Broadway at the same time. Uh, and I continued through daytime until I finally realized if I went to television out on the other coast, I could take the decimal point and move it one spot over. <laughs> and uh, and I did. And so late 80s, I came out to um, L.A. and I started doing nighttime and uh, movies. And um, I, I didn't do any theater uh, for quite a while. In fact, it wasn't until I went back really to Broadway um, right after Dancing with the Stars in 2005 or six or something like that. And I uh, premiered in uh, uh, headlined in uh, Chicago on Broadway. Which so, I am doing to this, even to this day. Uh, so, what was it like when you got out to LA? Was that uh, a big, uh... a, a, a totally different beast? I mean, everything about LA is different. It looks different. It feels different. The business is different. Um, you know, and New York is a walking town. And as an actor, you you walk from this rehearsal studio to your agent's office. You have access to your agent back down there. You have access to the business. You know what's going on. The rehearsal halls are filled and. You know, the theater community is only, you know, it's on, you know, it's riding the same subway car with you. Um, you get out to L.A. and it's just you're sitting in your apartment waiting for the phone to ring and you have no access to your agent. You can't even get into the building where your agent is in. Um, and yes, so it's a very it's a much more isolated um, feeling out here. You are much more detached from the um, the community of 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 actors of theater. So what was, uh, was there sort of, uh, you know, how did it start to click for you then in LA or how did you start to, to figure out if you, well, I, I, I had to learn a lot about television. Uh, television is a different medium. Um, television comes to you. The camera comes to you. It will find you. You don't have to do anything on stage. You have to deliver to the back of the house. It's a whole different feel. It's two completely different dynamics. Um, and when you're on television, you're not playing a character that you're not, you're not shooting a character that has a beginning and a middle and an end. You're going page by page by page, scene by scene. And that may take place over, you know, four or five hours. If you're doing a sitcom when they shoot it on Tuesday nights, or it may take over, take place over 10 days. If you're doing a single camera, uh, if you're doing a movie, it may take place over six to eight weeks where you're then your your character has the arc on stage at eight o'clock every night. You take a character that has a beginning, a middle and an end, and it can't stop. So, again, two completely different dynamics of, uh, of performance and you have to learn those. And um, it, it takes it takes a while. There are no natural stage. I mean, there are no natural stage actors. You have to learn a craft. There are people that you can induce a performance from um, on camera by just telling them how to say lines. Um, 
but you can't do that on stage. So, but there is a technique to learning how to um, act on film or television. Well, and there's the idea that you get as many chances as you need too. obviously, like with theater, it's there in the moment. But yeah, you can do multiple takes or, or just sort of everything. As I said, it once at eight o'clock when the conductor's baton drops and the orchestra starts playing, they're not going to stop. So and um, um, the same, you know, and, and the same thing if you're doing a straight play, once you begin, it doesn't stop and say, oops, let's try that scene again. So how was it for, for building characters for you? So if you're doing TV, you know, versus a play, you, you have all of the information right at the front. But if you're doing TV, you know, you you are getting week, a week's worth of material and the, the character might change. Or was that hard to, to adjust to? Well, well? I, mean, I mean, let's take a character like Peterman on Seinfeld. Over the four years that I was on Seinfeld, the character started to develop an arc. Um, you know, he, he seemed fairly lucid and um, logical, or well, mildly logical, in the beginning. Uh, and as the character began to appear, he became more and more detached uh, to the point where he was absolutely a raving lunatic by the time he went off to Burma to find himself. Um, and um, so there was an arc to the character. I mean, it changed dramatically over the period of time, but you could see it coming. And what was that role like for you? To obviously, I mean that that's probably the most iconic role that you you played. Like that's I would assume what a lot of people know for you from. How how was that? Oh, sure. um, it's the number one. I mean, it's the number one syndicated show in the world. It's in eighty five <laughs> countries, I think, or something like that. Um, um, yeah, it, uh, um, it, it for me because I was I created the character. I mean, everything about him I created. Um, it was a chance for me to um, take the longest, largest uh, leap in my life artistically and trust that the net would appear. I mean, that character was just so, you know, I mean, the writing fortunately supported the chances I took with the character, um, which was the, you know, the marriage of that as to why that show was always good. It's just that uh, you know it could support that kind of uh, character that was over the top. No other show could. And what were you, what were you told about the character going in, or what, what did it look like? Just you know, all happened very quickly. Uh, I had a I had a show on uh, on um, ABC called A Whole New Ball Game uh, sitcom, and it was canceled on a Thursday morning after we'd been on the air for about uh, three quarters of the season. And they said, don't bother coming into work. The series has been canceled. So I said, all right. And that dinner, that uh, evening, I went to dinner with my manager crying in my beer, trying to take the cancellation as personally as I possibly could. <laughs> and uh, Larry David's office had called and said that there was this role to uh, be perfect for John. If he'd come over tomorrow morning, the table reads at noon or whatever it was. And um, so they gave, when I got over, I, first of all, I said no, because I didn't want to guest star on somebody else's show. I was still licking my wounds over the cancellation of my series. And uh, so I, uh, uh, my manager never called. He called me the next morning and said, just go over there and blow it out of your system. I said, okay. So I did. They handed me the script. It wasn't even completed yet, but they did hand me the Jay Peterman catalog. And I went, read through it and they said, we want the character to sound the way the catalog is written, as though this stuff is just tripping off of his tongue, this Hemingway drama of uh, an Oxford button down. 
along with the price of size and, a, and an availability. Um, so I kind of thought that he was a little bit like a 40s radio drama combined with a, a bit of a bad Charles Kuralt. And uh, that's how the, that was the genesis, really, of the character. Uh, and and as you said, so you, you did it for four years. It's, uh, you know, one of the most well-known, uh, you know, comedies of all time. It's syndicated. It's still uh, readily available. Uh, I'm sorry, what? So I was just curious, like, what was it like post-Seinfeld then, of sort of approaching roles, uh, you know, and sort of... Oh, it was, you know, it was kind of, it was sad because there wasn't anything like Seinfeld. And you knew that the day that ended, that was the day the music died. Right. And there wasn't going to be another show like that because television was starting to fragment and no other show could garner that kind of audience. And any other show that, that began wasn't going to get the networks, um, wasn't going to get the, uh, the chance to survive that the network, that that show needed. And so what was your approach after that when looking for new work? Did you, you know, what was sort of in your mind? Hmm. Well, I did a lot of other, uh, you know, I, I got called for a lot of other shows um, that I did that had, you know, kind of that very urbane type of boss or, you know, I, I did Tim Curry and Annie Potts and I did a series called Over the Top and I was kind of, uh, I was Annie's boyfriend or fiance or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, again, it was a, a little bit stiffer type of character and I guess I was kind of getting uh, kind of stuck in those spots a little bit. That's how kind of how people saw me. And then, you know, also at that same time, the game show world was opening up to me and I had, um, I, I did, uh, um, uh, to tell the truth for about three seasons and uh, uh, before going over to um, Family Feud there for a little bit. Um, but I still was going back and forth. And then that's also when Dancing with the Stars came in. And what was the, the appeal of the, the hosting stuff for you? Was that just uh, something different to try? No, it just, it just, no, it just came very easily to me. It was something that, you know, it's like, you know, as a child growing up, my... Uh, you know, it was it was as as the oldest boy in the family. It was my job to open the door when there were parties at the house and say hello to everyone, take their coat, and get them a drink. <laughs> um, that was my job. So that's a little bit like uh, what I, you know. So it was, and and you had to talk to adults. And uh, so sure enough, I grew up with an it, just hosting people. I mean, hosting a show is very similar similar to hosting a party at your home. That's all it is, really. Um, and expediting the, you know, the, the core of the game, trying to make sure the game moves along and, uh, and be as witty and as funny as you possibly can. Try to use your mind to absorb what the people are saying and process it and try to come up with witty repartee. But in any case, keep the game moving. Uh, well, as you mentioned, uh, so you, you sort of you went to L.A., you went to TV and you did that for a while. What was it like going back uh, and doing theater again after you know, such a long sort of uh, break? Um, it was, um, well, I had to get my singing voice back in shape. Um, and that was, that took me a little bit, but, um, again, I, I'm happiest when I'm on stage, uh, because I, the whole, because the whole theater is usable. If I'm on camera, 
only what the camera sees is usable. So there's a sense there's a sense of expanse as an actor on stage, um, whereas a an actor in the you know in, the, in film or television is really only concerned with about uh, you know six inches of space that the camera is picking up around your you know your mouth, your head, your nose, your top of your head, and, and your chin. I know I've seen people talk about, too, when they take a long break like that, that was there any sort of nerves about doing theater again, or was it just very natural and it just came right back to you? Well, you always, you know, you have nerves, but I, um, but you know, I do one thing before I go on stage, whether it's TV, what, what, no matter what it is, before I, before I open my mouth, I say one prayer, and that is this. I say, God, let me be surprised. I like and that. And so I, what I do is I remove the onus from me to try to perform. And I replace it with the burden of listening, because acting is really reacting. So if I, so that way I don't have to go on with any preformed impressions of what's going to happen. I know what I'm going to say. I just don't know why I'm going to say it yet. So I'm always listening, and I'm always looking in that person's eyes, waiting for the reason for me to say the next line. Uh, well, I wanted to to ask you about uh, the new film, uh, Swing Away. Um, mm-hmm. What a uh... What was the appeal of this? What what drew you to this project? Well, there were many many things. Any one of them would have driven me over there to uh, to film in Greece, and that was one of the biggest. Uh, you know, the idea to to go to the Greek islands and, and and film a movie about something that I love so much as the game of golf, um, and to also uh, and also to work with a very malleable script um, and a character that they truly let me sculpt. Um, he's an American. You know, he's a cutthroat American developer with absolutely no. Uh, he, he's uh, a Type A personality and absol- has absolutely no sensitivity, um, and he's absolutely unredeemable in that respect. Um, and he can be as large as he wants because he's got all the marbles. And um, I like that. It's a fun character to play, and most of the character most of the character was improvisational for me. Oh wow! That we when we rolled. I just said to let the camera roll. Let me say what I want to say. I know what I know. What, I know what's written here. Let me say it the way that you know that because I, I I tend to think more um, lyrically. Yeah, that's got to be great when you have an opportunity to do that, when you can just sort of play with it in that way. That that's really awesome. Oh, it's an actor's dream to be able to just you know if you if you feel confident in the role and you you have that sense of poetry in your head, then it's it's a wonderful blend. And this was that exactly that moment, and I think that's why I enjoyed this character so much is that, and that's why the character is so damn real is because he's just you know he's the worst side of me <laughs> was um was there anything i know that you you're a golfer like was that was there any bad side of the golfing that came out or was any of that in the character or well or... the nice thing is that it's you know the, the, the story is about a piece of you know the golf the only golf course on the isle of Rhodes and one of the only golf courses in all of greece uh and the golf course is is like in you know b plus condition. It's a terrible little golf course, a little public thing, and it's, you know, it's, and that's the story. And, and it's, it, it fits so perfectly into the story because the Greeks don't play golf, but, but you come and try to take that golf course away from them, and you're going to catch the bad side of their temper because it's part of their culture. But, <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it, and it's not a part that, it, they don't play golf, but that golf course is part of their culture. You know, <laughs> so you won't, you know, so they'll defend it with their life. They won't play the game, but they will defend the piece of turf. 
And so that's what uh, it ultimately came down to. And it becomes this, uh, it, it's played out as a, a golf competition between a little 10-year-old girl and, and me. And, um, I mean, that's the kind of the uh, comedic and dramatic um, uh, uh, 11th hour moment in the show. And it's very funny. And it, it's, you know, it, it's the meat and potatoes of the uh of the movie, but it's just, but it's a wonderful story. It's very uplifting. And, uh, it's a story about redemption that all things are redeemable ultimately if you, uh, no matter what happens and you just, you, you find a deeper purpose. And, uh, that's what, uh, Shannon Elizabeth's uh, character was, uh, was all about. What else is on the horizon for you? Is there anything else? Uh, well, I'm still doing Chicago. Uh, I'm completing the, uh, national tour of it right now. I, uh, I'll be, uh, uh, next week I'll be in Illinois and Palm Desert. Uh, then I've got to go to Providence uh, later on in May. In the meantime, I'm um, touring my one-man show, which is called A Man with Standards, uh, which is uh, kind of a retrospective of my life. Um, and uh, I use the songs from the Great American Songbook, the, the standards of the 50s and the 60s, to kind of parallel what was going on in my life at the time. Um, and also the fact that I grew up in the period of time when men had standards, manners. And um, so I talk a lot about that as well. And uh, my father and, and what his generation would do, uh, dinner and dancing and the elegance of that time, the style and, and swing of the 50s and uh, the supper clubs in the early 60s. So I talk a lot about that. And it's, it's, it, it works very well in a touring show. And it brings back the, the music of the time the Sinatra stuff and the Henry Mancini's and the uh, Bobby Darren's. And the... So I'll be touring that and I'll be at, actually going to be at, um, I'm taking over the uh, Hotel Carlisle there in New York City, the which is the top room in the country, the uh, Cafe Carlisle there. I'll be doing my show, um, the one-man show there. I'll be doing it from uh, March 28th till April 8th there. Uh, and is there anything else that I didn't cover that you would like to mention or anything I didn't ask about? No, I've got, uh, let's see. Well, I've got the, you know, I've got the, my dog shows on Thanksgiving uh, that I host uh, for NBC, the national dog show. Uh, we get the largest viewership of anything on NBC, which is 30 million people. Uh, they just, and because of that, they just gave us uh, another one, which is um, uh, the Beverly Hills dog show. Um, which I just taped over this past weekend. Oh, great. And, and will be airing on uh, Easter Sunday on um, uh, 8 o'clock on USA Network and then airing again the following week on uh, NBC. Um, that's the Beverly Hills Dog Show presented by Trivina. The Mirror, the national dog show that we do on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love that dog show. Actually, I, I do watch that every year. That's it's really great. Well, this one's even this one's even different. And I got to help design this one so that the best in show at the end of the show actually looks more like a Victoria's Secret runway show. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, it, it's really beautiful. I mean, that, the best in show is it, it, when 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 the world of, when the dog show world sees what we've done in terms of redesigning this whole thing, it's going to change the way that people think about dog shows. Oh, awesome. No, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It, it was so great talking to you. I really appreciate you, you taking well. the time. Yeah, thank you so much. You betcha. Good to talk to you as well. I appreciate the interview. All right, take care.
And there you have it. Delightful, right? Like, just really fun guy to talk to. Uh, always good to hear uh, sort of, you know, the, the Seinfeld stuff, hear about how the character of Peterman came to be, and to, to hear about what he's up to now. And uh, I really enjoyed chatting with him. And if you enjoyed it, I would highly recommend going to hobotrashcan.com looking through the archives, seeing what other interviews you might enjoy. Recently, I, I talked to Kim Coates from Sons of Anarchy, talked to Pete Holmes, who has his show Crashing uh, on HBO right now. I talked to Vincent Rodriguez III from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and those are just the recent ones. There's a ton of them in the archives. Go check them out. And uh, until next time, remember, kids, don't do drugs or you go to hell before you die. of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. We have to ask. It's a podcast where we answer the question, are you going to eat that? What will you leave behind? Why get out of bed? Will you be our neighbor? I'm Marty. And I'm Jonathan. We're two hosts. Infinite Universes. We We have have to to ask. ask. New interviews every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes or online at wehavetoask.com or with the other great podcasts on the Peak Sloth Network at peaksloth.com. Peaksloth.com.